Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we are going to be listening to the full interview of Larry Ramirez, a trumpet designer who specializes on working on the instruments of jazz legends. So let's jump right into the interview of Larry Ramirez. Hello, and welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to learn more about the program or view any interviews that aren't featured, visit namm.org library. Welcome back, everybody, to another exciting episode of the Music History Project. We are thrilled to provide you with the full NAM oral history interview of Larry Ramirez, a legendary uh, instrument designer who specialized in trumpets, who worked out in uh, Elkhorn, Wisconsin, where I was uh, able to get up uh, and meet with him several years ago, thanks to our good friend, Greg Anderson. Uh, just a fantastic guy, a great opportunity, and oh my goodness, sitting toe-to-toe with a guy who hung out with Miles Davis and Maynard Ferguson, among many, many others, was really a great opportunity. So I'm really thrilled to have this chance to share that with you guys today. These episodes always really excite me when we listen to the super behind the scenes guys, like the instrument builders that created the instruments that you hear on all these hit records. Like, obviously, it's the musicians that are playing the instrument, but there's so much that goes into actually making that instrument and designing it specifically for each musician. So this is just going to be like super interesting. And I'm really happy that we're we're focusing on Larry for this episode of the podcast. Well said. Absolutely. And it's really great too, because like these um, instrument designers, they really get to know the musicians in a different way, uh, but a very intimate way. Cause it's like, you know, that's their baby that you're making basically for them. So, you know, they're going to have all these specifications and, and, you know, what they're going to want. And so just really great insight. And, uh, and yeah, he has some fantastic stories. So we're going to jump right in, uh, listen a little bit about his kind of how he grew up and how he got into the trumpet. A hilarious story from that that you were not <laughs> expecting, trust me. <laughs> uh, and just hear a little bit about his uh, evolution of of uh, playing the trumpet and then kind of getting into designing it. So here is Larry Ramirez. Maybe we can start with just a little bit of your own background and how you got into the music industry. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Oh. And... Uh, I started off uh, on this paper route that no one wanted. This paper route was on Larimer Street. I don't know if you're familiar with that street, but it has all the stripped joints and um, uh, jazz clubs. And it was a street that, you know, you didn't want a kid to be on. And I was delivered at 4 in the morning, the Rocky Mountain News. And I, there were a lot of pawn shops there. So I'd see this horn, this trumpet hanging there. And uh, every day I'd stop and just stare at this thing, thinking, man, I got to get some money together for this horn. And one day this woman passed by and she said, hey, kid, do you have an extra paper? And I didn't look at her. I just said, yeah. And I handed her a paper. She said, what are you looking at? And I said, see that horn there? I'm saving up for that trumpet. Someday it's going to be mine. And she said, oh. Well, here's an extra, and she gave me a 50-cent piece, which in those days was big money. 
because in those days paper cost five cents. You know. So a few days later, I'm at that same shop, uh, pawn shop, looking in the window. It had a little light on this trumpet, and uh, she passes by with another woman. She says, "There's that kid I told you about." So they said, "Hey, kid, give us the paper." And I said, "Okay." They said. Here's some money for your trumpet. They gave me really a couple of dollars. So in time, all these, they were, I didn't know who they were. They were well-dressed ladies, you know. <laughs> they were ladies of the evening. And they're the ones that really bought my first trumpet. And then later on, they started paying for my music lessons. And uh, then I started playing uh, in all these different places where they had uh, mostly Latin bands and... Uh, by the time I was, uh, I think I was 17 or something, I split my lip because I was playing too many high notes. And so I wanted to, I heard about this trumpet teacher in Chicago, so I thought I've got to get near Chicago somehow or another. So I, the only job I could find would, was in Gen, uh, General Motors in Janesville, Wisconsin. And, uh, so I went there just to be near Chicago, and one day I happened to notice in the paper this ad for a trumpet tester. Now, when I, when I went to this place to find this trumpet teacher, he looked at my lip and he said, you're going to have to stop playing for one year. And I said, oh, man, I can't, I can't stop playing you know, that long. So I happened to see this guy playing a valve trombone. So I asked him all about it, and he says, it sounds just like, it's, it's fingered just like a trumpet, only it's an octave lower. So I started learning how to play that. And I found out, man, these valve trombones have a lot of problems. So I switched to slide trombone. And then with that slide trombone, something happened where it, it cured and uh, did something to the, to the tissue that was torn and healed it. And now I could play trumpet again without any problems, but I could also play trombone. So one day I was playing in this nightclub and I was doubling on trumpet and trombone and these people called me to, the, to their, their table and they said, have you seen our ad in the paper? And I said, well, yeah, it was for a trumpet tester. And he said, yeah, we'd like you to, you know, we'd li like to offer you the job or at least audition for it. I said, well, what does it entail? And they told me it's just, playing horns all day long. And I said, are you kidding me? So I went there the next day and I auditioned and I just happened to have a cold sore. And I thought, man, I'm going to really sound terrible. And I told him, look, I have this cold sore. I'm going to really sound terrible. They said, well, do your best. So lo and behold, that cold sore actually enhanced my playing. <laughs> it was like a miracle. And and I knew I was playing really well, and I, I was watching them, and they were really impressed with what they were seeing. So I put on an act, and I said, darn it, I just can't play right. And they said, you're playing that well, and you've got to come. <laughs> so I got the job. That's fantastic. So <laughs> then uh, a couple of years later, uh, in walks this really great-looking Italian dressed like, oh, so wonderfully well. And he had like a, a bunch of people that looked like bankers, all with briefcases. 
and they called us all to this big room, all the people in the in the all the employees, and they said that Holton had been just had just been sold to LeBlanc. And here's the new owner. His name is Vito Pascucci. And so that's when I first encountered Vito Pascucci. And uh, a few days later, we started talking. He came up to te- to 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 the testing room, started asking me questions, and I started teach. I I started telling him that LeBlanc trumpets were having a lot of problems. We were getting a lot of LeBlanc trumpets in our factory for repair. He said, for whatever for? I said, the action, they're having problems with the action. And they've said they've gone to your place and you just tell them you're not fingering it correctly. I said, Vito, you can't tell people that they're not fingering the valves correctly. And he said, well, I didn't know they they were doing that. And I said, here, let me show you. And I picked up the horn, I pressed the valves on the side. There were some LeBlanc trumpets hanging in my testing room there for repair. And I showed them how they stick with side pressure. I said, see, you can't have a horn do that. And he said, well, you don't play that way. And I said, no, but this is a way to test it out. Because eventually, when people play with certain angles, they're, they're putting side pressure on it. Different people play different ways. You know, some hold the horn sideways, some hold it this way. Some finger with the valves, their fingers overlapping the valves, things like that. And so Beto and I started having a relationship, and uh, I think I must have made a little kind of a an impression on him because after that we we were you know really close. And then one day they sent me to to meet the great um, uh, Maynard Ferguson. Uh, Maynard Ferguson was an idol of mine. Ma- Miles Davis, Maynard Ferguson and um, Clifford Brown. And <clears throat> I used to walk my girlfriend from, her, her, her brothers and sisters were all great musicians. So I used to lie to her, I'd say, someday I'm gonna, do you know Miles Davis? Yes, I do, I know who that is. Someday I'm gonna introduce you to him, he's my friend. Do you know Maynard Ferguson? Yes, I do. Well, someday I'm gonna introduce you to him, he's my friend. Not knowing that someday I really was gonna do that. So one day I came home and I said, Glow, that's my wife's name, Gloria. Get dressed, we're gonna, remember that promise I gave you a long time ago about meeting Maynard? Well, it's gonna become a reality tonight. So we went to see him and uh, he and I just saw each other and we, there was some chemistry there. Not only that, but my wife had been studying Indian philosophy and she started talking to him about Indian philosophers, and he was amazed with her knowledge. And he was, you know, he, she and Maynard got along really great because of that. So after that, after Maynard and I started working together on different horns, that opened the door to other people. And Miles Davis was another one. And so one day I came home and I said, Globe, remember that time I told you I was going to introduce you to Miles? Well, get dressed tonight. We're going to go see him. And uh, I was very, very fortunate in being in the right place at the right time. I did go to school for 10 years at night. Vito sent me because he saw, he said, Larry, you've got this little something extra. He said, you should be going to school. I said, tell me where to go and I'll go. So I went to 
night school gateway technical right here in the school, right on the edge of town. I went to uh, Carthage College for uh, materials and process, and I went to Black Hawk Technical in Beloit. These are all different nights of the week. And then on weekends, I would be playing. So I hardly saw my family because I was working all day at the factory and then going to school at night and then playing on weekends. So I decided I was going to buy a, a tape recorder and record all the classic children's books with classical music or jazz in the background. And so I read all these child's children's stories like Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer on the tape recorder with good music in the background for my kids so they'd hear their father. So that was one way of being close to my kids and not being there at the same time. Mm. And uh, I used to play a lot of Miles and a lot of uh, things like sketches of Spain and things like that for uh, background music. And I'd play some Mozarts and some Be Beethoven, whatever I thought would fit the story, you know. So, but um, during all this time, I, I met some really great classical musicians too. Uh, I worked with the great. Phil Farkas, I don't know if you know who he is, Phil, Professor Phil Farkas. And we developed some great horns, and uh, they were the most sold instrument, French horn in the world at one time. Mm. And through him I met uh, Barry Tuckwell. He's a, he was the, the top French horn player in his, when, at the time when I was working with him. We came out with the Barry Tuckwell French horn, and it was quite unusual in that it came with two lead pipes, detachable lead pipes, and no other French horn came that way at that time was, was featured with that, uh, that capability. Um, Did you work on the uh, Merker horn? Yes. That's, uh, that's how I, uh, Ethel and I became really close. The day she came to the shop, she came in, in a sports car. She drove up to the, there was a U-drive, U-shaped drive right to the front door of the lobby and she'd drive up really noisy with the muffler and all that and uh, she came in and uh, the plant manager took her home a couple blocks away for lunch and as she drove up to the driveway uh, his son was out mowing the lawn he's 16 years old just turned 16 he made such a commotion about the, the sports car that she threw him the keys and she says go take it for a spin so he did, and he totaled it. And that was the day she came back. She and the boss, my the plant manager, came back to the factory. And uh, that's when they told me what happened. And uh, uh, from then on, we we and I thought she took it so well. You know, she was not. She was just glad that the 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 the, the son didn't get hurt. You know. And uh, kind of, it seemed like after that she could do anything she wanted in the shop. Not because she insisted, because, you know, we were all, I guess the plant manager was trying to make it up to her for what happened. And uh, little by little we got, we, uh, got um, to know each other, and she'd always be coming with Phil to try out experimental French horns. And through Ethel as, uh, and Phil Farkas, as I met Barry Tuckwell. And many of the other great French horn players, and um, 
Was there something unique about um, uh, Ethel's horn? Yeah, it was a dual bore, for one thing. Um, it had um, a special lead pipe on it. Um, and we built the horn for women because women were always having to have the finger hook resoldered because they had smaller hands. So she said, why don't we come up with the horn with an adjustable finger hook on it? So we built the horn with the intention of selling to many women. Well, it turned out that just as many men were buying it too after we, you know, came out with the, the approved model. Hmm. I'm glad I asked you about that. Yeah, I, I got to interview Ethel and I just found her to be a wonderful person. Oh, she's, she's, we had so many good times together. We used to go to different workshops together and, hmm. There were a lot of great stories that, and I'm writing my memoirs right now. Oh, fantastic. And she's, she's in it quite a bit. So is Phil Farkas, and so is Maynard. I've got, uh, I, I just wish now that I would have taken notes, you know, because I didn't realize at the time how precious those, those, those times were with Miles and with Maynard and people like that. I, I just it took it for granted. Now, I think back and I think, wow, why didn't I, you know, there were so many moments that we had together that I'm writing about and I'm thinking, I, I didn't even realize at the time, here I had this treasure sitting next to me or we're eating together. All right, so that is Larry Ramirez, I told you, very interesting story about how he got his horn and uh, his first couple <laughs> lessons, definitely. They knew, they just knew he had a passion and they wanted to help him. Uh, and then just crazy story about uh, Ethel Merker and the car and the whole nine yards. And uh, there's going to be some more fun stories definitely coming through uh, as we listen to this interview. And it's really neat. It, uh, it showcases some of the folks that we've been able to interview over the years, too. Ethel Merker, uh, Maynard Ferguson, Arturo Sandoval. I mean, he's worked with a lot of great people that uh, are now part of our collection as well, which is really uh, extra interesting to me. Um, and and the in the case of Maynard, um, you know, if you're not familiar with this guy's jazz technique as a player, you really ought to listen to him because it's really hard to describe the power that he put into that horn. I mean, just screaming and hitting notes that you didn't know existed and it just unbelievable power. Um, and so for that, he really required some, um, some instruments that could hold up to the task. And uh, he constantly had issues with that in previous um, encounters and, um, or would just simply wear a horn out. And I think that was really Larry's task was to create something where uh, it wouldn't wear out as quickly as some of the other uh, instruments that Maynard uh, abused, if we can say it that way. <laughs> um, and he was very pleased with it. So when we interviewed Maynard, he made a particular note to talk about Larry's instrument, which I thought was great because I hadn't yet uh, met Larry. Uh, so it wasn't like I asked about it. He brought it up. And I think that is very telling of a career that was so legendary as Maynard's that uh, he um, made sure that that particular horn and that particular person, Larry, uh, was uh, mentioned as part of his 
his own story and his own journey in music. Uh, that is a testimony that I don't think you can replace. So this next section of the interview, um, Larry's going to be talking about working with these jazz greats. He's got some great stories about Maynard Ferguson, Vito Pascucci, and then this big section about Miles Davis and all the work that they did together um, and a couple other names that you're definitely going to recognize. So keep an ear out for all of these jazz legends we're about to hear about um, on this interview with Larry Ramirez. One time I remember <clears throat> we were in a restaurant eating I had this whole band that I was treating, and I was telling Maynard that Vito had been was in the hospital. He was sick, and Maynard said, "Oh, he said I'm really concerned about that." He said, "Do you mind if I say a prayer for him?" I said, "Oh, no, not at all. That would be great." He says, "Okay." So I didn't realize that he was going to start chanting. He started humming and chanting. Pretty soon, all this conversations that were going on throughout the dining room there started diminishing. Pretty soon you could hear a pin drop and you could hear Maynard humming and chanting these prayers. And, you know, because he's into that Indian philosophy. And uh, Although when I used to go visit him in his dressing room, he had an altar with Jesus, Buddha, all the... And he'd say, I'm covering my, all my bases. <laughs> but... Um, I'll never forget that moment when we were all so, the whole room was so quiet. The only thing you could hear was the doors to the kitchen swinging open every once in a while. When they'd open, you could hear the, the pots and pans and the cookie or cooks and the chefs, you know, communicating in the kitchen. And then it closed. The doors would close, swing closing, be silent again. And uh, I, I put that in the book because it just, it was like uh, a precious moment then. And I thought, how dear this man is to think of Vito like that. And he didn't care. He didn't care who was watching or who, who he, he was just, you know, he was in a spiritual, mo spiritual moment. Do you have any favorite uh, recollections of working with Miles? I know you worked with him quite a bit. Oh, with Miles. <clears throat> there was a, uh, the, the first time I, 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 I was sent to Denver, my hometown, by the way, where he was making his debut in Red Rocks. Uh, I don't know if you know where Red Rocks mm -hmm. is, where they have concert outdoors. And I went to his hotel, his suite, and I knocked on the door, and he opened the door about this far, and I could see that this really dark, he is the darkest African-American I've ever seen. His skin is so dark, it's almost purple. I never realized that in the, because I'd only seen pictures of him. And he said, I said, it's Larry Ramirez. And now previously when I had talked to him on the phone, I, I, I told him that I was uh, asked to talk to him because the other en engineers didn't understand what he was talking about. So he said, uh, who are you? And I said, Larry Ramirez. And he says, are you related to Ram Ramirez? I said, no, but I wished I was because Ram Ramirez is a great composer. He composed such numbers as uh, Lover Man and things like that. So we hit it off right away because of my name. He, he, he just admired Ramirez, Ram Ramirez so much. And Ram Ramirez, I guess, was from New York City. So um, when he told me what he wanted, he wanted a, 
a trumpet uh, with a, a certain color on it. At first he wanted one red, one white, and one blue. But then afterwards, I, after we talked about it, I kind of talked him out of getting the white trumpet because it would be difficult to do. And he said, well, never mind, then make it black. So the first trumpet I made him was a dark black one, and then he wanted one with kind of blue, and I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, and he had a, he was almost like a, a off green, bluish, bluish green type of color. So that's what I brought to him that day in, in Denver. Avito flew me there just for that, to present him these horns after about three months of working on it. So he said, come on in. And uh, I took the cases out, and he put them on the, on the coffee table there in, in the front room there in the suite. And he picked up one horn, and I'm standing there, and he put his mouthpiece in it, and he put the bell of it right up to my stomach, about this far away. And I thought, well, I'd heard Miles is, you know, weird, so I'm just going to go with everything he's doing, you know. So he started playing with the bell of the horn in my stomach. And uh, I, I was going to move back, and I thought, no, I'm just going to stay here. And he finally said, you don't mind if I use you, and with his growly voice, you don't mind if I use your stomach as a mute, do you? I said, no, not at all. So, oh, man, he says, this is great, this is great. He says, um, let me hear you play it. Do you play? And I said, yeah. So we'll play something for it so I can hear it from the other end. So I thought, what shall I play? I'm not going to play jazz. I'll play sketches of Spain. So I played do 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 And uh, I played it my way. I didn't play it the way I'd heard him play it. And I guess that really turned him on. And uh, he said, man, he says, you play pretty good. He said, uh, you know, that was the hardest album we ever made. We started talking about Sketches Pain, how difficult that was for all the, the whole band, not just him, because it had some really difficult parts, and especially the trumpet section. And he said, just a minute, <coughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the room and show my, my woman this horn. So he went in this room, and I could hear this woman talking, and she came out. She had this big, huge sunglasses on in a white robe. And he introduced me, and he said, this is Cicely Tyson. And, oh, man, here I'm sitting into, next to Miles Davis and Cicely Tyson. Anyway, that was my, that wasn't really the first encounter. I remember Beatles sent me to another uh, concert he had done a few months earlier in Chicago, and uh, he, he told me to look at his horn and take measurements, and so that's what I did. So when, um, as I was leaving the the dressing room, Miles said, Larry, 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 make me two, make me two. So I re that wasn't, that was, the, that was the first time I had met him. Mm. Then three months later, we, Vito, flew me to Denver to, to present him with the horns. And uh, it was my hometown, so uh, my mother uh, went there, and we went backstage after that, that evening at the Red Rocks concert. And uh, my mother wanted to meet him. My mother's very dark-complected. She's a really, you know, she almost looked like African-American herself. 
So I introduced Miles to my mother, and my mother opened her purse. And she said, here, Miles, I brought you something. And she had brought a homemade taco <laughs> for Miles. I didn't realize Miles loved it, though. I thought, I was, oh, no, you know, but Miles said, yeah, great. He had diabetes, and I didn't realize it. And I, real, I didn't realize that earlier on when we talked in his motel room in the daytime, he'd say to uh, his wife, Sybil, Sisley, uh, um, Larry wants a beer. And she'd open the refrigerator and there was these green bottles of beer. What, what brand are the, uh, the green bottle? I can't remember now. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. So she gave me a beer and she gave him a beer. And she says, now you're only allowed one beer. So Miles would be watching her and watching her, and when she wasn't looking, he'd switch beers with me. So now I'd have the empty bottle, and he'd say, Larry here needs another beer. And he did that all day long, you know. And I'm not, I'm thinking, I'm not going to mess up this, you know. So I didn't say anything. I just went along with everything he was doing. So we got carried away talking so long that day that before you know it, it was time to, to go to the concert and his manager came knocking on the door miles you got to get going we got and so he did i don't think he had too much time to eat so that taco that big huge thing really came in handy <laughs> <laughs> your mom had perfect timing <laughs> yeah she did and at first i was so mom what are you doing i'm thinking to myself because she's here miles asked she opened her purse and i thought what is she doing she pulls out this taco wrapped up in a uh, a napkin or something. <laughs> but um, Well, there's so many stories about how Miles did not get along with other people. It's really neat to hear another version of him. Oh, he treated me great. He treated me. There were other times where I remember one time I, I happened to be in Dallas, Texas to visit my son. And um, his girlfriend said, hey, Larry, look in the paper here. Did you know that Miles is here? I said, Miles is here playing now? She says, yeah. I said, I'm going to go see him. So that evening we went to see him, and he he didn't know I was coming. And so I left my card with the the, the one of the guys in the band, and immediately they sent for me out in the audience and come back, Miles wants to see you. So I went back there and... He says, where's my horn? I said, Miles, the engraver died. Because he, you know, we used to do his horn in a special way. We'd do it all in black, black lacquer. Then we'd cut through all this engraving and then dip the horn in gold. And the gold would just adhere to where we'd cut through. <coughs> and it was beautiful. Mm. Well, this horn got d delayed because the, our engraver died. So I told Maynard, I said, I'm sorry to tell you, but the engraver died. And he says, I didn't kill him. <laughs> you know, in his gravelly voice. Yeah. Don't look at me, man. I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Fantastic. Now, working with these guys, you know, you had a long list of the classical, the jazz, pop players. Were there any particular design ideas or tweaks to a horn that really kind of surprised you coming from a musician as far as its cleverness or its uniqueness? Well, with Miles, <coughs> we couldn't get the black to, to uh, 
you know, we sprayed it one time and it did it didn't cover well. So we sprayed it another time. It covered a little better. So before we knew it, we had given the corn about four coats of lacquer. And so I thought, when I played the horn after we got it all together, it made the horn sound much darker. And I thought, oh, man. Because it, it actually made the, the thickness of the wall a little thicker. Hmm. Well, when he tried the horn, he loved that. He liked the dark-sounding horn. And that's where I realized, oh, well, now I know what direction to go. Um, sometimes these things that happened were an accident, but turned out to be uh, for the better, you know turned out to be a blessing in disguise, I guess you could call it. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, oh, one time with Arturo Sandoval, I was taking him back to the airport, and he said, what kind of tapes do you have here? And I said, oh, I only have one tape today. He says, I said, it's a Barry Tuckwell French horn. He said, play it. I said, do you really want to hear this? He said, yeah. And I said, it's, it's Barry Tuck while trying to play jazz with uh, this guy from England, George Shering, remember, the blind guy? And uh, so Arturo listened to it all the way back from, from Alcorn to Chicago, to the airport, O'Hare Airport. And uh, he said, do you hear that sound, Larry? And I said, yeah. He said, that's how I want my flugelhorn to sound. I said, but that's a French horn. He says, I know, but you got to try to get that sound. So it gave me an idea. So I started using French horn tapers to, to develop his flugelhorn. Huh. And I used solid copper uh, rather than uh, uh, a combination of copper and brass. And... Uh, I think it's the only the only flugelhorn at the time. Maybe there's a change since then, but at the time, it was the only flugelhorn that was made with French horn tapers, and it had a unique sound on it. The, the kind of sound Arturo was looking for. He wanted a complete contrast to his trumpet, and it was. And I think that's the appropriate way to go too. If you're going to play flugelhorn, don't play it like a trumpet. Some guys did. They, and you have to approach the flugelhorn in an entirely different way than a trumpet. It's fascinating. Yeah, very interesting. So I worked with, let's see, uh, oh, um, Dizzy Gillespie. <clears throat> um, I, his horn wasn't, it was the one that he'd always used before he, when Martin, he played the Martin Committee. And uh, um, the only change on his was the bell bent up like that. And that was an accident on what happened with him with at a party. or It happened on the, the stage, I guess. The, the horn fell over and got bent, and he had to finish out the night with that. And uh, he, everybody said, you could, we could hear you better that way. So he wanted all his horns with the bent bell after that. Uh, so when he called me, this was after he'd left Martin because Martin had sold out to um, Willitzer. So he went with, I think he went with King for a while. And then somehow or another, through another trumpet player of mine, a friend of mine, Wallace Roney, I don't know if you've heard of him, Wallace Roney, he 
got dizzy to go back to the the Martin Committee trumpet with the bent, with the slanted bell. Hmm. And so the last horn we sent him uh, was the horn he was using, and that's when he passed away, I guess. Um, hmm. One time I remember working with Stan Kenton. I went to see him in Kenosha. He was doing a concert there. And he had just come out with a, uh, an album with four mellophones. So I went back and asked him, why did you use mellophones? He said, why are you asking me that? And I said, they're a little bit out of tune. He said, yeah, he said, I know. He said, but I couldn't find any French horn players that could swing. You know, In those days, they didn't have any. So I said, look, I've got an idea. And I told him on, on some paper, some scrap paper I had. I showed him what I had in mind. It was a, a French horn with valves on it like a flugelhorn, you know, instead of rotary valves. And I would put a certain kind of uh, collar on it so it darkened the tone considerably. He said, yeah, I like that. He said, I, I, when can you have that ready? And I said, it'll take me some time, but I'll start working on it. Well, uh, just before he, I, I, I didn't finish in time. He passed away before I could finish it. So the horn's hanging in the in my room there and some band directors came by on a tour and they said what is that and i explained what it was he said you know that would be a good marching french horn so that horn became one of our marching french horns that was all by accident you are listening to larry ramirez on the music history project podcast and real quick, I just wanted to mention that all of those names that he brought up, well, not all of them, um, unfortunately, but some of them, we are actually able to interview for the NAM Oral History Program, including Arturo Sandoval, uh, Maynard Ferguson, Vito Pascucci, and we actually have a full interview posted of Vito and Larry on our website. So if you want to head over to namnamm.org slash library and search for any of those names, you can watch their video interviews. Some of them, I believe Vito's is an audio in interview, um, but the other ones are full video and it's it's really interesting to see the interviews in their entirety. So check that out if you get a chance. And you mentioned Vito Pascucci, um, a very interesting story about the LeBlanc Horn Instrument Company uh, originating in Europe. But during World War II, um, Vito was the band instrument repair guy for uh, a little band called the Glenn Miller Army Air Force Band. <laughs> and in fact, it's a funny little set side story about Vito talking with Glenn Miller, uh, Miller recognizing that the big band era was probably coming to an end. Um, everyone was realizing that economics was probably going to force a lot of larger bands to stop being on the road. Um, and, and that's exactly what wound up happening. Um, so he had the idea since he had a, a well-known name and he loved musical instruments that Glenn wanted to start the Glenn Miller music store chain and have uh, them throughout the United States and asked Vito for his thoughts and perhaps a partnership with that. Well, unfortunately, he was lost during the uh, the war and that never happened. But I always think about how cool that would have been to have Glenn Miller music stores all over the place. Um, but Vito, uh, while in Europe, went and introduced himself to the LeBlanc company and wound up 
uh, opening the uh, LeBlanc sort of U.S. branch uh, where they manufactured instruments in uh, uh, in Wisconsin. Uh, and a very interesting guy. Um, he was very active in the NAM organization, so I got to know him a little bit. He was one of these guys that when he walked in the room, everybody stopped, uh, watched, listened, um, and learned. I learned a lot from that guy. Um, one of the things that was kind of compelling is that uh, I forget the name of the gentleman, um, but there was a, a list of the best dressed Americans, uh, the top 10 list, and Vito was on it for like several years in a row. I mean, talk about dressing to the nine. This guy was a sharp dresser and um, and he loved the music industry. He, you know, he could have done a lot of things. I think he was a very brilliant guy, uh, but he stuck with the music industry and he brought his son, uh, Leon, into the industry as well. And I'm uh, very proud to say that uh, Leon and I are friends. I've gotten to know him over the years. He was very instrumental in the, uh, the beginning of the Museum of Making Music here in Carlsbad, California, and just a really great guy. In fact, uh, one of the instruments that LeBlanc made for, um, uh, made of Larry Ramirez's trumpets was uh, a, um, a Miles Davis red trumpet, which um, Leon was able to loan to us for a Miles Davis display several years ago. And that's not an easy task. You know, they don't make those instruments and just sit around on the shelves. They make them specifically for people. So the fact that we got to borrow it meant that he had to negotiate it with the person who ordered it saying, <laughs> do you mind if we hold on to it just for a couple of more weeks? A <laughs> uh, great guy, uh, both of them. And uh, just a, a great compelling story of how uh, Vito really brought that company into the country and built it up. He had his own line of Vito clarinets and was very innovative in his own right. But I think among the things that he was most proud of was his ability to identify great talent and hire some amazing people such as Larry Ramirez, who went on to create a whole line, a whole series of instruments that were best sellers for the company at all as well as customizing instruments for these specific um, musicians, including Miles Davis, for which, of course, they still have the red trumpet available. Wow, and you're going to hear a little bit more about all of, kind of pretty much all of what Dan just talked about in this last <laughs> segment. Um, you're going to hear about where the red horn came from uh, and uh, a little bit more about just kind of some projects that he had and special uh instruments that he created over the years for different artists and for himself. And then he has a really fantastic little segment at the end of, uh, of our last segment here of talking about how much Vito meant to him and just what a great guy he was and not just to him, but to like to the LeBlanc family and uh, coworkers and, and just kind of how, how um, the personal uh, connection that he had with him. So this is uh, the last segment of Larry's interview. And so let's just jump right in and listen to Larry Ramirez. So what year did you um, start with Holton? 1962. Wow. And who were, were um, I'm trying to think who, who was in charge at that time? Do you recall the? It was, uh, we were, we were, it was a year or two, about a year and a half before LeBlanc bought us. Oh, okay. 
It was uh, the it was owned by a person by the name of Elliot Kale. Wow, that goes back a ways. Yeah. 1962. That was a great company. It put yeah. some good stuff out. We made some great French horns, some good trombones. I worked with many of the Chicago symphony trombone players, Jay Friedman, mm. uh, Ed Kleinheimer, uh, Chris Fooley, um, Let's see, we did make a Jay Friedman model. And uh, his uh, Ed Kleinheimer's 169 bass trombone is now kind of like a collector's item. Uh, many of the people are looking for that. It's kind of, it reminds me of the old uh, the violin, the Stradivarius violin. <coughs> That's the way it's starting. It, it is a very special instrument. Mm. Um, but they, Vito and Ed Kleiner, I think they had kind of a falling out because they, um, about three or four years after LeBlanc bought the place, something happened, and I'm, I'm not quite sure what. I wasn't in position to know what it was. But uh, one of our... Oh, did I talk about the Superbone? No. I made that horn the first year I got in at Holton's. And... Uh, I made it for myself, and that was one stipulation that when I took the job, um, I told them, they they told me that I could, they could only pay me half what I was making at Chevrolet, and I said, okay, I'll take the job if you let me experiment with some of the horns, some of your old scrap parts. So I said, yeah, sure. So the first year I made the Super Bowl. And then I used it, and it uh, for 12 years. Nobody, you know, heard about it. Ed Kleimer came and looked at it. He said, that's a great horn. It's, you know, it's for, it's got a good concept to it. But he, he never, you know, said, I want one or anything, because he played bass trombone. And this was a small tenor trombone. So when I met Maynard, we finished making his, his uh, trumpets, and, and uh, one day he said, no, he said, I'd like to talk about trombones. And he, I told him, hey, uh, I have a trombone at home you might be interested in. So I told him what it was. It was valve-slide combination trombone. You play the valves on the left hand, the slide on the other. And he said, no, Larry, he said, I, I looked for a horn like that. They said it's impossible to have seven full positions on it. And he says, I've been all over the world. And they, could, they said, you don't have room on there where the valves are, they would take up too much room. I said, well, mine has seven full positions. He says, oh, well, when I'm going to be at Marquette in Milwaukee in about three weeks. Can you bring it there so I can look at it? I said, sure. So I took the horn out of my bedroom, brought it back to the factory and had it all polished up and shined and buffed up. And uh, took it to him and showed him how to hold it. And he picked it up and started playing it. And I'm looking at him because it took me three or four weeks just to get used to using my left hand, you know. He said, oh, Larry, I'm ambidextrous, you know. So there's no problem there. So do you mind if I take this up on stage? I said, are you serious? And he said, 
No, I see. He says, I really, this is a, I love this horn. I said, okay. So that's when the whole thing started. Now, he, at that time, he had an all English band. And most of the guys in there would refer to anything that they really liked as super. So the other three trombone players would always be asking him, can I borrow that super valve slide combination tenor trombone? Pretty soon it got shorter and shorter and shorter. And then meanwhile, Maynard wanted to uh, endorse the horn. So one day he calls up, he says, Larry, 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 he says, I got this great idea. We're going to call it that, that horn a super bone. And I said, oh, I thought, well, you know, I hear I'd, at least he's given me some recognition. I won't say anything. So I was really disappointed with the name, though. And then in the beginning, he would say, uh, I'm going to introduce a new instrument to you. It's called a super bone. Now, you women out there, don't get excited. It's a musical instrument. <laughs> And one time, uh, I was—I had taken some horns to Count Basie, and it was an all-black area on the south side of Chicago. And uh, Count Basie had me sit right dead center in front of the stage, and he had this comedian Red Fox on him on too. And the comedian uh, Red Fox would always say this word, "mf." You know. Every other sentence, my wife would go like this. So finally, Red Fox had her the spotlight put on my wife, and he said, "Ma'am, where are you from?" And she said, "Alcorn, Wisconsin." Ah, Alcorn, uh, corn what? And the whole place just roared with laughter. Anyway, he kind of played with her and <coughs> made fun of her, and then. Uh, he sent word back that he wanted to see us. I didn't realize what for at the time. but So one of the guys in the band, one of the trombone players, came and escorted us to the dressing room. And in front of the dressing room was this big, huge, 350-pound woman. And she was like the guard. She was blocking the way. And she said, you're not going anyplace. She says, well, this guy's, you know, and she started, the, the, said, I'm in the band. He says, yeah, you can go through, but not these two people here. He says, well, don't you realize who this is? She says, I don't care who it is. She says, he says, this is the guy that invented the Superbone. She says, I don't care what kind of sex instrument <laughs> he, he invented. He's not coming in. <laughs> but she was really protective of... of uh, Red Fox and Count Basie. And we finally got back there and Red Fox apologized to my wife. Another time, I was in St. Louis. I was driving my wife's, my daughter's little sports car and it broke down. I was all alone. So I get out of the car and I push the little sports car to the curb and I'm thinking, I've got to get to a phone. So I started walking. And as I'm crossing the street, this black guy's coming across with a cane, really old and really slow. And this car comes around and almost runs him over. And there's a car with some white people in there. And they, they hollered at him, get out of the way, you, you know. And uh, these people that were all on the porch, they noticed that they came running up and they helped him up, the, the, the old man. And then they saw me and they said, they started following me. What is he, what is he, this 
guy doing in our neighborhood, in our area. So I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm in trouble. And they started following it, about eight of them, all about 18, 19 years old. So I'm thinking, oh, man. So I see this, this uh, record store. So I run in there, and I ask the guy if I could use his phone. He said, no. He says, this is a, not for public use and all that. So I'm looking at the, the board. It's all Miles Davis albums there. So I said, you see that horn there? I said, I designed that horn. He said, yeah, and my, my dad's Abraham Lincoln. You know, this is a black guy running that owned the store. So I said, no, really, look, see the horn there? And it was a, a, a black horn with like half moons on it that we engraved. And I told him all about doing that. And he said, uh, Oh, and then I pulled out my wallet and I pulled out a card and it said, see that name Martin on there? There's my, my then Martin company there. Said, my God, he says, Let, just a minute, you got a minute? He ran down and got two guys from the basement that were working on stock or something. And he said, hey, this guy, and he told, told them who I was. They said, you know Miles Davis? And I said, yeah, I've got some pictures in my car I can give you that he autographed for my friends. You know, it just said Miles Davis on it, but, you know. Oh, great. Where's your car? And I said, well, there's a problem there. I said, uh, and I explained what happened. And I looked outside, and those guys are still out in front waiting for me to come out. Oh, I said, we'll handle this. So <laughs> they go out there, and they said, you motherfuckers, get gone, get lost, you know. Leave him alone. He's our friend. So I told Miles about this later on. I said, man, you saved my butt. He says, well, you owe me one. Give me another horn. This time, this time I want a red one. And he really was serious. He wanted a red horn, cherry red. And we, we did. We, we made him a cherry red horn. But that's... Yeah, I remember seeing footage of him playing that horn. Yeah. Fantastic mm. stories, Larry. Unbelievable. Um, there was um, quite a few... Rare moments with these. Maynard is the one that I had more moments with, though, because hmm. I knew him from the middle '70s until till we closed up about three years ago, about four years ago. Hmm. Actually, the last time I saw him, we were. I went to see him, and he was in the dressing room, and Vito had just passed away. And uh, we were discussing some other people, and he said, he's gone, he's passed away too, Larry. And uh, just before I left, he said, Larry, there's only two of us left. We're the only two left. And I didn't realize how, how uh, that was going to not last too long. You know, he was going to be gone too. Hmm. But uh, many of those People were just really great. Phil Farkas was one person that took me under his wing. He's a French horn player. He was one of, he just treated me so great. He was the real, he was the one that I first met because he'd come to the, to, he'd fly in his airplane and, and, uh, there's a little airport here in, near Delavan that he'd land in 
It's my job to pick him up and take him to the factory. And I had to pick up, take all his prototypes out of the, the airplane. And I'd look in that little flimsy airplane and I'd think, my God, this, this is smaller than a Volkswagen inside. And he'd always say, put your seatbelt on, because I'd never put my seatbelt on. In those days, hardly anybody did anyway. And uh, one day I said, you know, Phil, I'm going to be testing your horns. He said, great. Because the chief engineer was getting older, and he was, he was saying, you've got to take over on a lot of this stuff, Larry. So I said, would you mind giving me lessons? He said, oh. He said, I'd be, I'd be glad to. And I said, oh, how much will you charge? He said, no. I mean, you know, I'm, you're not, I'm not charging you anything. He says, it's a pleasure for me to do that because you're going to be handling my horns. So when I started playing, he was amazed at how high I could go and how low I could go. Higher than a regular French horn player and lower than a regular French horn player. He says, Larry, how, how are you? You're a freak. And I said, it's my trumpet chops and my trombone chops taking over there. And that really was what was what was happening. And he'd say, oh, Larry, I'm so glad you can play the whole range of the instrument and uh, and uh, be able to check these different areas where other people can't because they can't play that low or they can't play that high, whatever. Mm. So he taught me a lot of things, a lot of things about playing. That I, what to look for in a French horn when you're playing. Mm. Um, and that was just one of many artists that took their, took a lot of time with me, uh, helped me in any way they could. Um, what was unique about the uh, Fargus uh, products? <sighs> well, he did a lot of experimenting. He would have a dozen mouth pipes, and he would he would have all these people come in from Chicago or the symphony or different friends from all over the country, and we'd go into this room and he'd have them try all these different mouth pipes out, and he would really really get into researching the horn, and um, I think that's what made the horn so good because he was really thorough about what he was doing with the, with the horns. Mm. And he would teach me how to be really thorough in checking them, make sure that they were very, you know, top-notch performance all the time. So a couple of times he'd come in and he'd say, Larry, you've been in the forest too long. What's the old saying? You've been in the forest too long. You've seen... You don't see the trees anymore. It says, that's happening to you, so you've got to be careful. And it was true. Sometimes you check something so much, you begin to become blind to certain things. Mm. So. Sounds like a very insightful guy. Yeah, and he, he was at, he'd make everybody, he'd go down the factory and talk to everybody and say, how's your wife, Pat? How's your wife, you know, or your husband? He knew everybody in their, their wives and husbands and children's names. And they were like, um, at that time, close to 200 people working there. And he'd make everybody feel so special. And they could be the janitor, you know. He never had, you know, he was always very even keeled with everybody. Always treated them good, very good. 
He was a great teacher, too. Um, I remember being in a huge, huge French horn workshop, and we were at the banquet, and there were, I don't know how many French horn players were there. And this one guy stood up, and he said, I want everybody here that took lessons from Phil Farkas, please stand up. Well, one-third of the place stood up. And he said, now you stay standing. I want all the people that take lessons from these people stand up. Another third stood up. And by the time he was through introducing everybody, there were only about 10 people left sitting that had not been in contact with Phil Farkas. And these were all the best French horn players in the world. This is called a, the French horn, uh, the International French Horn Workshop. That says something. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you to back up a little bit about Holton. Um, did Vito make a lot of changes when he uh, when he bought it, or did he let it run by its uh, 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 to continue sort of the way it was for a while? Well, it was one year when all the instruments did not do well. It was a very bad year, and all of us had to take a cut and pay. And uh, the one instrument that saved the whole corporation was our French horn. Hmm. And after that, French, uh, after that, there was no cost that was, uh, how, was how would you say it? He gave us anything we wanted at Holton because of that. Had, and he redid the whole front um, office, had it all remodeled, and gave us all new machinery. Wow. Um, he just, he didn't realize how important our our French horns were until that happened. Mm. And he says, if it hadn't been for the French horns that year, I think we might have, you know, gone under. It was, it was really a bad year. No clarinets being sold, no, you know, all the... The other instruments that were big money makers. It was really a bad year that year for every all the horn makers, <clears throat> and uh, French horns have saved us. Um, one thing I liked about Vito is that <clears throat> he preferred, demanded that we have quality over quantity, and he'd say. It'll pay off in the in the. It may cost us this much, you know, but in the end, it'll 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 be a, a saver, money saver. And he was always right. People would say, "By God, he's spending a lot of money for that." But in the end, after five years or so, it was he was more than paid for the the machine or whatever it was that we less than a year sometimes it would pay for itself. Hmm. I really have to say, Vito Pascucci was, we really took him for granted uh, at work. Um, after he passed away, I happened to mention to some people that he paid for some of my medic medical uh, things that, that uh, where my insurance didn't pay. In other words, our insurance would pay 80%, we had to pay 20%. And uh, he helped pay for some of my, in fact, all my medical bills. 
And um, the guy said, oh, he did that with me too, but he told me never to tell anybody. Everybody in that room had that same experience. And nobody knew it. You'd help people on the slide like that. Every Christmas, I always got this great wine. He was a wine connoisseur. A beautiful silk necktie. I still have them all, too. Um, um, it was just, all, again, I started taking it for granted. You know, I expected it. And he didn't really have to do that. Well said, that's true. This is so fascinating, Larry. I wish I had five days to hang out with you. <laughs> <laughs> so many great stories and great insight. Oh, Maynard is the one that, that used to always impress me with his enthusiasm. Mm. I can remember one time we went to see him, and he had, he had, he had done two concerts that day, that night. So by the time he got done with the last concert, it was almost midnight. So I went back to see him, and he was, he's still talking about all these things that he was going to do, we were going to do with the horns and some albums he had, looking forward to recording. And I said, listen, Maynard, are you hungry? And he said, oh, I'm famished. I said, I saw an Italian restaurant just three blocks from here. He said, I said, do you want to go? And he said, yeah. He said, do you mind if I asked the band if they can go and I said absolutely sure invite them so we go in this room it's about this big <clears throat> all the guys are laying on their backs like this exhausted and he comes in hey guys let's go out and have some pizza and they go oh no man we just want to go back to our hotel man we, we, don't, we don't want to eat nobody would take him up on it they were they were just exhausted they just wanted to go back to the hotel and get some sleep but he wanted to keep going and he wanted to keep going and he <laughs> we went out and ate and he had a tremendous appetite and i think we talked till three in the morning and he had all these things but yeah he was so he made me i was really tired too i'd sit there and start getting coming alive too you know get me on uh how get my what do you call it juices flowing yeah He uh, he never really did do anything with the Super Bowl, no. Because he was really a trumpet player, you know, and he just couldn't get into that world. He wanted, I remember he asked me to make him a, a trumpet with the, the slide on it, too. And we made it, and uh, he did some interesting things with that. But did you know who really was going to do something with it but passed away? Don Ellis. Really? Don Ellis was really the first person I ever worked with. Before I met Maynard, I met Don Ellis when he was so poor, he walked into the shop, the Houghton shop. He had holes in his tennis shoes before that was a, the fad. <laughs> and, and when I, we picked out, I have to pick out some horns. And I walked him. We started talking about jazz, and I told him about some of my concepts. And he said, I have the same ideas, Larry. But I, at that time, I never, I never thought he would. You know, I had already had the Super Bowl made, mm. but I didn't put the two and two together that he would like that. 
So I'm walking him back to his car, and I look at his car. It was a 49 Chevy, rusted out. It, the tires were bald. I said, where are you going with this? He said, I'm going to L.A., I'm going to the West Coast. <coughs> he said, put the horns in the trunk. I said, Don, I said, you're not going to make it back in this car. And he said, oh, yeah, I'll be all right. I said, you got to at least check your tires. Man, they, they're going to blow out on you. So I said, nah, I'll be all right. So he's driving away, and I actually got on my knees and said a little prayer. Dear Lord, protect this guy. Get him back safely. And I guess he listened to my prayers because he did make it back, never had any car trouble that I know of. Then about a year or two later, we got this letter in the mail. He wanted this quarter-tone trumpet. And at that time, this was before Vito but didn't it wasn't even involved yet. Vito had we didn't even Vito hadn't bought the place. So they they said, Larry, can you imagine this guy must be nuts? I said, Why? And they said, He wants a horn with a you know, a quarter tone slide on it. It's gotta be a four valve. I said, Yes, that sounds interesting. Ah, oh, Larry, man, we'll never sell any horns like that. And I said, that's not the point. The point is, you know, once he gets started on it, you know, see what he does with it. So they kept saying, no, no. And I said, look, do you remember the time this one guy was a really strong on Duke Ellington? He was a Duke Ellington advocate. I said, do you remember the time when you were young and they said Duke Ellington was way out? He said, yeah, I do. He was about an 80-year-old guy there. I said, well, this could be somebody like that. Really? You think so? And I said, look, what? give him a chance. He's, he's a bright guy and he's, you know, he's thinking way out here someplace and maybe that's where we're going to go musically. So they finally, I finally talked him into it. We made the trumpet and look what he did. He became, but then he, he, years later he got, he ran into Maynard. Maynard showed him this the firebird the trumpet with slide on it and the super bowl so don wrote to me said i gotta have one of those horns i gotta have both of them i said are you serious he says yeah because larry i'm trying to do all this stuff with the, the valve and you can just do it with your slide you know and get that same effect and you can ascend and descend whereas on this one you can only descend so we sent him a super bone and a firebird and he was starting to, just getting into that. And I thought, now he's the guy that could really do something with this. And then he passed away. He died at 40, early 40s of a heart attack. It's mm. a shame. There was another guy by the name of Ashley Alexander that was just made the Super Bowl in his instrument. Went around touring in his, in his bus. And he had Super Bowl up on top there on the place where the, you know, where... The Greyhounds used to have their oh, destination, yeah. and uh, he was starting to do something with it. And he too died of a heart attack. So I used to get kidded a lot. Larry says that horn's a killer. It's, it's you know it's too complicated. <laughs> His name was Ashley Alexander Jr. Well, this is great. I really, Larry, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Uh, it's my pleasure. 
All right, you guys, that's the uh, conclusion of our awesome interview with Larry Ramirez. Again, thanks to all those whose uh, efforts have made that and all of our interviews possible. We're always very grateful for the support. And I love the segment about Vito, as we said earlier, a great guy, compelling, uh, and as well as his son, Leon. Uh, thanks to all of those guys who made this interview possible. And um, wow, what a great now inspiration for all of us to go and listen to some Miles Davis. Let's go listen to Maynard. Hit those high notes, Maynard. Hit them hard. Um, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. This has been a lot of fun for us. Yeah, it's definitely been a fantastic interview. And, uh, you know, I think it's just a perfect highlight of uh, the behind the scenes people that you maybe don't always think of, like kind of how Mike mentioned in the beginning. And the connection that they have to these musicians and, and what they mean. Uh, I mean, for, you know, Dan, you mentioned like uh, Larry's name had to get mentioned in that interview because he was like, no, he's he helped me. Like he made my horn and mm. I trusted him. And that, I mean, it just shows that relationship that happens over year over the years of um, with the instrument maker and the musician. So, and you get fun little stories about those musicians <laughs> that you can't forget. <laughs> so fantastic interview, so much fun. Yes, definitely. I agree. Amazing interview. Thank you everyone for listening. If you're on nam.org, thank you for watching our full video version of this podcast. If you haven't had a chance to check that out, yes, this podcast is in full video form. Just head to nam.org slash library slash podcast, and you can see all of our episodes there. Um, but thank you for listening and watching today. We will be back in two weeks with a brand new episode of the Music History Project. And until then, bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.